You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer Alex Diaz and our production assistant Daniel Tersini, we would like to welcome you to our show. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Good morning, Kathy. Yep, everything's fine. That's great. Happy day after Raptor Parade. Did you guys take it in at all? I only was able to watch a couple of the YouTube clips uh, late last night. I was I was here at the station for the majority of the the day. So I wasn't able to watch it. We took, uh, I took my daughter down <clears throat> and we were there bright and early and it, uh, it was something. Well, we wanted to be a part of, of history and uh, it really was something to behold. I never, ever envisioned uh, what, what we saw yesterday. It was just... I, I don't think anybody could really... The sheer enormity of numbers was beyond anything that I could have envisioned. And um, Was it between 1.5 and 2 million, right? I don't know. I heard between 2 and 3 million. Oh. I, I don't know if they can figure out exact numbers. They they ended up having to shut the subways down. Nathan Phillips Square was just... you were It was immovable. We, I, we had front row seats on university, and I walked over to Nathan Phillips Square to find out what would be the best place for us to to get our spot. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided for University Avenue because um, Nathan Phillips Square was already getting full, so we wouldn't have seen too much yeah. of the players. And we were at 8 o'clock, front row. And uh, by the time the parade came, which was three hours late, and they had shut down the streets, mm-hmm. we were about seven rows deep. So it was, um, that aspect was very disappointing. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it was it was extraordinarily long and delayed. It was it was wonderful to see the players, but uh, as we were talking about uh, off the show, I think a lot of things that have come from it has that, that we we dodged a, a bit of a bullet. Yes, but it was as uh, we were something. as we were saying, mm-hmm. uh, Toronto overall was a bit unprepared, uh, incredibly unprepared. Yeah. And uh, two things come away from this: we need to be better prepared, and we also need to not wait twenty four years between. 23, 24 years One, between 24, parades. 24, but when you compare it to when, when, the, when the Leafs last won the, won oh, the yeah. cup. That's, Honestly, yeah. I mean, I know hockey's our thing, or at least it has been our thing. I, I can't believe that uh, we'll see anything like that again as far as a sports thing. Oh, no, just, I, I, uh, I thought lacrosse was our thing. Is, no, is, no <laughs> I don't think so. I think... Uh, <laughs> at, least, at least maybe in, in, the, in the books, for sure. In the but, books as our national sport. In, in reality, I don't know that uh, lacrosse gets enough uh, enough credit for what it is, but for sure, hockey. And yeah, but it, it just is, yeah. it was it was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming, and um, you know, kudos to uh, the people that were there. You know, ninety nine point nine percent of everything went off very well. There were some unfortunate things that happened. We don't need to really discuss. It's all over the news, but uh, for the most part, and for that 
the sheer enormity of people that were there. Yeah. I think mm. everyone was fairly well behaved. And, you know, it, exactly. it wasn't too hot. I know the people at Nathan Phillips Square, they had, you know, poor access because just the numbers to the, no food. If you move from your spot, you lost your spot. Yeah, and done. if you're there yeah. overnight or it doesn't matter what time you got there, if you moved, you weren't getting back to your spot. I had a friend who had to go to the bathroom and they never reunited with the people they were with. But, you know, honestly, it could have been um, it, it really it could have been much worse. It was a joyous day for the Raptors, for sure. Um, but I just I just hope that the next time we win, we have a little bit. We can't say yes to everybody. I think that's the long and the short of it. There yeah, has to be limits. There has to be. But, of course, this being uh, Toronto's first experience, uh, I think it it went off it went well. Off. Like, like you said, the majority of people were were well behaved yeah. and Some, represented Toronto and Canada very well. They did. Some of the scenes, you know, people pulling over on the gardener uh, to take pictures. It was just, it was unbelievable. A sheer yeah. testament to the joy that everybody felt. Mm-hmm. Um, so all in all, a, a positive day, but a lot of takeaways to, you know, work on to for the next from, parade, yes. for sure. Hopefully it won't sure. be too long. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> not sure that I would make my trip down there again to Nathan Phillips Square. Um, I didn't, like I said, I didn't stay in Nathan Phillips Square, but maybe the next parade I'll leave to, to someone who hasn't had the joy of sitting there for so long and I, taking something like that in. I think people will have to maybe consider taking uh, a, a week off yeah. just to get their place. Yeah, but anyway, to figure things that's, out. That's for another day. All in all, it was, uh, it's been such an exciting run. And just uh, if you're a sports fan, like I said last week, it's just, it's just something that is just... Just unbelievable to be a part of. Anyways, today's show is live, as you can tell. Our number is 416-245-1534. Please do follow us. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC. And email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. If you have any questions, concerns, uh, we do get people calling in for certain show types that they would like, which is wonderful. So please do feel free to, to contact us. And do subscribe to our podcast. We are called the Health Hub. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your uh, podcasts platforms. Uh, take a listen. Wonderful, wonderful guests, including our guest today, the esteemed Dr. Mark Pimentel. Um, and really a lot of great information, especially people who are just transitioning into integrative health. Great uh, platform for you to learn a lot of different things. One of the favorite uh, parts of the summer for me is going to our local farmers markets. I don't know if you guys partake in those at all. Occasionally. I, occasionally. I, I love going to them for so many reasons. Um, probably the most important reason, though, for me is you're, you're eating seasonally. And when you're eating seasonally, so many wonderful things come of that. You're eating fresh, ripe food. <clears throat> A lot of the produce that comes to us off-season is picked before it's ripened and allowed to ripen on our way to us. And uh, when you're getting fresh fruit and vegetables from the farmer's market, they're coming from vine or tree to you. They're packed full of flavor and taste and are more nutritious. The flavors that come from um, some of the produce that you get at farmer's markets are, is just wonderful. Uh, you just can't beat it. Uh, it's, 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 I just love to, to partake in things. Also, it allows you the opportunity to experiment with different foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there are lots of different things out there that we don't see in the supermarkets that uh, are really fun to try. 
And uh, I, I think of Shane Jordan, one of the guests we had not too long ago about food waste. And mm-hmm. you, when you see like the garlic coming in its full, you know, full package and, and things like that and ways that you can use the whole plant. It's uh, I just I just love it. I love the smells. I love the camaraderie, camaraderie in the community that uh, the farmers seem to have. And going to local farmers markets helps us to support our farmers. That's very important. It is very important. They're a big piece of our food chain, of our economy, and they've got a lot of competition. So helping to support them is is a a great, a great thing. Also, something that you may not think about going to a farmer's market, but you're supporting the environment. As I said, you know, when you're going, when you're getting seasonal or fruit that fruit and vegetables that aren't in our season aren't grown here you know they're coming from california or florida mm-hmm. they have to come by truck they're packaged so you're taking a toll with the fuel the pollution the packaging we're creating more garbage and and it does help when you go to the every little bit helps you know every yes. little bit of, of stuff that we can do to support our environment is very helpful um so having the the produce come straight from the farm to the market and you buy it there supports the environment and it also um, adding variety to your diet that i talked about just a second ago having different nutrients into your diet adds to your health you know i always talk about rotating your food and there's no better place to rotate your food than at the farmer's market you know when you're buying seasonally you're buying what they grow and uh, once that, that season has gone, you uh, move on to the next crop that they have. So I highly encourage you to go to your farmer's markets. <clears throat> Excuse me, a little frog in my throat. Also, if there's anybody who would like their farmer's market advertised, I would be more than happy to do so. I've got two that I want to tell you about. One is the Aurora Farmer's Market. It's uh, 49 Well Street at Town Park in Aurora. It runs from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. from May the 4th to October 26th on Saturdays. It's a beautiful place to go. Meet uh, neighbors if you're from the area. Uh, meet the local farmers. They love to chat and uh, really, you know, start start a new diet at the farmer's market. The other one is uh, one that I go to frequently because I'm up in Collingwood a lot, and it's the Collingwood Farmer's Market. It goes from rain, uh, sorry, it goes rain or shine from Saturday the, what is it, the May the 18th. So it started to October 12th, which I believe is, again, Thanksgiving weekend. And it runs from 8.30 to 1 p.m. I love this place. I always see um, the the uh, owners of Anadaga Chaga. They were a Chaga mushroom guest here on the show. So yes, they were. They were. That was one of our one of our big shows, actually. So love to see them up there. So do support your local farmers markets. You'll also find lots of crafts and things that you can get involved with and and buy and talk to people. It's it's a great a great place to go in the summer months. So enjoy. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Pimentel. He is Professor of Medicine, Geffen School of Medicine, and Associate Professor at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Pimentel completed three years of an undergraduate degree in Honors Microbiology and Biochemistry at the University of Manitoba right here in Canada. This was followed by his medical degree and his Bachelor of Science in Medicine from the University of Manitoba Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg, where he also completed a residency in internal medicine. 
He has medical training. His medical training includes a fellowship in gastroenterology at the UCLA affiliated training program. Active in research, Dr. Pimentel has served as principal investigator or co-investigator for numerous basic science, translational, and clinical studies in such areas as IBS and the relationship between gut flora composition and human disease. His work has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Internal Medicine, American Journal of Physiology, American Journal of Medicine, American Journal of Gastroenterology and Digestive Diseases and Sciences, uh, Sciences, among many others. Dr. Pimentel has been invited to present his work at meetings, grand rounds, and advisory boards in the United States and internationally. He is diplomat of the American Board of Internal Medicine, Gastroenterology, and a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada. Dr. Pimentel is also a member of several medical associations, including the American Gastroenterological Association, the American College of Gastroenterology, and the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society. Many, many great things on his CV. Our learning points today are... What is SIBO? What are signs and symptoms of SIBO? And how is SIBO treated? These are three things about many things that we'll be talking about with Dr. Pimentel when we return.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show today is live. If you'd like to call in, our number is 416-245-1534. And you still do have time to uh, pop me out some questions. Probably Twitter is the Facebook at the, uh, Twitter is the Facebook. Twitter is the best uh, place to do it right now. And we are at the Health Hub RMC. Dr. Pimentel, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Kathy. It's great to be here. Uh, are you a Canadian? I am. I was born in Thunder Bay, Ontario, for oh. your listeners. That's a little remote part of Ontario. Yeah, well, we in Ontario know where Thunder Bay is, that's for sure. I didn't realize that until uh, I started reading um, reading off all of your information. That's wonderful. There you go, a connection I didn't even know we had. Yes, go Raptors. <laughs> oh, <laughs> did you watch any of the, the parade events oh, yesterday? I watched everything. Yeah. So, yes, very much a fan of the Raptors. Yeah, it was great to see, great to be a part of it, and I am a huge Toronto sports fan, so it's what a fun ride. But anyways, let's not take away from the, the specialty that we've brought you here uh, for discussion about, and that is SIBO. Now, a lot of people don't even know what that is, so I think maybe that's probably the best place to start. Well, thank you for having me on the show. SIBO is an acronym for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth, and and I think SIBO has been around for decades. Uh, back in the 1960s, it was discovered using culture in very extreme cases of patients who've had their bowel rearranged from various, various constructive surgeries, but it's taken on a new framework in the last 15 or 20 years. Currently, the understanding is that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth means you're supposed to have a little bit of bacteria in the small bowel, a lot in the colon, but when there's a lot in the small bowel, that's that's not a good thing because the bacteria are now too much in the small bowel where, where you absorb and digest food and they get part of it. And when they do, they cause bloating, gas, distension, and sometimes diarrhea, sometimes constipation, depending upon the types that are there. And so that's sort of how we understand it currently, although you know things are shifting as we're continuing the science. Well, what this is new for a lot of people. I know when we put out the topic matter, um, uh, we I had a few people say I've never even heard of this. So, is this uh, a mainstream now in the medical system, or are we still crossing uh, that bridge to get there? Well, what's interesting is that I just recently was in Winnipeg giving a talk, and and. Um, in Canada, it's it's not so mainstream in the sense that there hasn't been a lot of education around this, but in the U.S., certainly, it's very hot topic. Uh, and in fact, two weeks ago, a Nature paper on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth from another group in the U.S. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is a big, big area of research here in the U.S., it has in part to do with the fact that the world is discovering the human microbiome. You've probably heard the words human microbiome project. Uh, we think that a lot of the bacteria in the gut have a lot to do with the diseases we have, anywhere from depression to you know, irritable bowel syndrome uh, and other GI disorders. And so the composition of your gut is, is, has impact, great impacts on your health. I mean, they can produce anything almost. They can produce serotonin, which can affect depression. They can produce insulin-like proteins. So they can manipulate you uh, depending if their composition is good or bad. Well, we've talked a lot here about gut health on the show. We've had many guests. It's also a a pet project of mine. But when it comes to SIBO... Now, we talk about the, the, the vast majority of the bacteria in the large colon. What is the purpose of the bacteria in the small intestine? 
So that's still a mystery. So, for example, um, we know that bacteria help to produce certain vitamins that we can't get. So if you eat lettuce, there's folate in lettuce. Uh, the bacteria produce the folate, you get the folate, and that's one of the best ways to get folate because you can't manufacture it. Uh, but they can also be detrimental because the bacteria, if in too high a number, can eat all the vitamin B12 in the food and then you get none of it. So it can be pluses or minuses depending upon the composition. But, you know, bacteria play an important role in health because they can be anti-inflammatory to prevent inflammatory diseases. They can ward off infections. So you kind of think of, think of it like this. You're in a city and you have doctors and you have uh, plumbers and garbage uh, folks that pick up the garbage and nurses, etc. And you need a certain proportion of all of those to make the city harmonious and function correctly. If you lost all the you know, sanitation workers, the city would be a mess. So everybody is important. And I think the gut is like that. The gut is like a city with various roles. And, and when there are interlopers, then there are problems. But the city tries to prevent those interlopers. Uh, and I can give you lots of examples of where that goes wrong and how we end up with disease. Well, why don't you give us a few of those? Because there's, uh, I've had a few questions that have been sent to me, and they're sort of playing into this theme. But maybe you could give us a, a couple of examples. Well, for example, I don't know how, how familiar your, your viewers are to C. diff colitis. C. difficile is an infection that happens often in hospitals from taking antibiotics or broad-spectrum antibiotics in a hospital setting. It kills or wipes out the city, the city of this bacteria, and all of a sudden the one bug... Clostridium difficile has room to grow. It grows up and creates a terrible infection in the colon. That's one example, uh, but there are many others because this, the city is basically protecting you from infections and other things. There's the one of the questions, uh, sort of a theme of questions that came through to me. Uh, there are lots of people with IBS. If yes. you have, so if we're doing a Venn diagram, if you have SIBO, do you have IBS? If you have IBS, do you necessarily have SIBO? Is there a huge connection there or are they two different lanes? Yeah, so this is a lot of our work over the last 20 years because so it's confusing for your audience to understand the relationship between IBS and SIBO. But let's go back to the 1980s of ulcer disease. <clears throat> so ulcer disease was you have a crater of an ulcer in your stomach. Nobody knew what caused it. They thought it was due to stress. And then later, uh, a fellow, uh, Barry Marshall, came along and said, no, it's a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. 70% of ulcers are now believed to be caused by Helicobacter pylori, an infection. But we didn't change the term. It's still ulcer disease or peptic ulcer disease. So because 30% is not caused by the bacteria. The same thing here. We think about 70% of irritable bowel syndrome is caused by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth but we're not changing the umbrella term of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. It's just we found a cause of IBS in 70% of instances, which is this derangement of bacteria in the gut. And so it is a Venn diagram of about 70% of IBS being SIBO. Well, okay, so if we're looking at it that way, are we talking like upstream to downstream? Or is is this a motility issue? Is it it the bacteria... uh, you know, getting into the, the small intestine, moving its way down, or is it a backlash from the large uh, intestine 
up into the small intestine. That was sort of the understanding that a lot of people that I spoke to threw out at me. Yeah, so uh, we're going to touch on a few of what you just said over the conversation, but let me let me start by saying what we know today. So for the IBS sort of uh, scheme, we now think that IBS or SIBO starts with food poisoning. So I was fine until I went on a trip somewhere. I got terrible intestinal infection, gastroenteritis, food poisoning. And then ever since then, my bowels have never been the same. I'm bloated. I have this weird bowel pattern, sometimes diarrhea, sometimes not. And that's SIBO. But we've worked out the mechanisms. So we now know that food poisoning has a toxin. That toxin, which is called CDTB, creates autoimmunity in you meaning it makes you react to the nerves of your gut permanently or for a long period of time. And then the nerves don't function. And then the gut flow is reduced. And then the bacteria build up. So I liken it to your lawn. So you have your lawn and the lawnmower is the motility, cleaning the grass and making sure the grass is well cut. If you don't cut the lawn, you're just going to have dandelions. And and that's what we see in the small bowel. If you don't have those natural mechanisms of motility, the dandelions start to overgrow the grass. And and those those that's basically bacterial overgrowth. Is there a name for that autoimmunity that you talked about? So there's a blood test now available in the U.S. where we measure anti-CDTB and anti-vinculin. It's called IBS Smart. And this test can actually diagnose that your SIBO slash IBS came from food poisoning. Uh, and it's it's been very successful in identifying it with more than 90% specificity. So that's been very helpful to start to dig into the mechanisms. But of course, there are other reasons for bacterial overgrowth besides IBS as well. So uh, we should probably touch on those as well. Let's touch on them then. Okay. So um, anything, and so remember I talked about the dandelion sort of analogy, anything that slows your gut will make dandelions grow. So if you're on narcotics, that slows your gut, you'll have overgrowth. If you have an adhesion in the bowel because you had a previous surgery, that will slow your gut down. Um, There are many other sort of mechanical issues. Unfortunately, tumors can do this as well. If a tumor is partly blocking the bowel, that will cause bacterial overgrowth. So anything mechanical or motility of the gut that slows the gut, especially the small bowel, this will happen. Um, When it comes, I'm just writing so many things down. So when it comes to motility, um, I think the first thing that's going to jump into people's mind is elimination. So if you were talking, are we talking about regular bowel movements as a good indication that you're not at issue? Are we talking about uh, constipation that may be uh, at issue when we have SIBO? What exactly are we looking at? Yeah, so it's very interesting because, again, as I mentioned earlier, the type of SIBO you have dictates the type of symptoms. So there are patients, for example, where when they do a breath test to diagnose SIBO, their hydrogen and their hydrogen is very high. And that's that type of SIBO, generally people have sort of loose bowel movements and a lot of bloating, gas, and distension. If patients have the methane type of SIBO with methane gas being produced by a different type of microbes in the gut over over blooming or overgrowing, they tend to be constipated because the methane gas 
damages or not damages is the wrong term, but it blocks the normal muscular function of the gut and you actually get constipation. The higher the methane, the more constipated people are. So that was the framework. Now there's a third gas that isn't being measured on breath testing, but uh, devices are coming this year. So I just want to get your your viewers ahead of uh, ahead of the curve is hydrogen sulfide. That's the third and final gas, and that produces a lot of diarrhea because it's toxic. So depending upon whether it's hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, or methane, will dictate what the symptoms are like in that individual. That's very interesting. I was going to ask you about the hydrogen sulfide. I've been reading some of your work that's come out. Um, Before I get into that, I think what we'll do is we'll take a quick break here. I want to get back into uh, going into some of the testing. I know you skirted over that a bit, but I really want people to have a good voice when uh, they go to their doctor and, and know maybe how to speak the language of SIBO because I think it's very important. So we'll be coming back uh, quickly after this break. You turned away when I looked you in the eye and hesitated when I asked if you were all right. Seems like you're fighting for your life, but why, oh why? Wide awake in the middle of your nightmare You saw it coming, but it hit you out of nowhere And there's always scars When you fall that far We lose our way, we get back up again It's never too late to get back up again And one day, you won't shine again You may be knocked down, but not out forever Lose our way, we get back up again So get up, get up, you won't shine again It's never too late
are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Pimentel about SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. Dr. Pimentel, I've just had about eight questions uh, fired my way. Um, Maybe I'll get to those first, and then maybe some of the things that I wanted to get to will come out of the conversations. Uh, Colitis, Crohn's disease, what's their link to SIBO? Is there any link to SIBO? So SIBO is an important contributor to the to a cause or a fraction of a cause of IBS, 70%, as I mentioned earlier. In the case of Crohn's disease, it's not a cause and effect relationship. However, Crohn's disease is a full thickness inflammation of the gut. Full thickness means the entire wall of the intestine is inflamed. And that can narrow the, the internal diameter of the bowel and cause SIBO. We do see SIBO often in, in Crohn's patients, especially when they're in a flare like that. Um, but remember, and this is something we, we sort of touched on earlier, 10 to 15% of every population, about a billion people worldwide, if you do the, the numbers, have IBS. So if you do 70% math, probably 3 million people in Canada have SIBO. And, and that's a lot, of, a lot of people with, with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in Canada. And 10% or so of Crohn's patients will also have IBS slash SIBO because just by the numbers. So it can happen together, and we call that IBS-IBD overlap. Uh, so it could be due to the stricture, or it could be just because you have both diseases, which is unfortunate. Okay, someone just asked me, IBS, IBD, I thought that Crohn's and colitis were a part of that. Yeah, IBS is completely different, and and it's really interesting in that I've been seeing, I just tweeted the other day, 50,000 patients in 10 years. I've seen so many people over 23 years here at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I have not or have yet to see a patient with IBS become IBD, Uh, thousands of patients. So it's very interesting that IBS generally doesn't transition into uh, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. But the the point is there are really now, I believe, there are two distinct disorders of the gut. But SIBO is really not believed to be a cause of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis in 2019. Things may change, though. Although it could be um, an initiator of SIBO? It, uh, yes, it could if there's narrowings or strictures, and we, we do see patients like that. Okay, and I think the question that begs to be asked here, because I'm getting tweets, uh, IBS and IBD, what is the difference? I think the <clears throat> most people think that IBS does flow into IBD, so if you're talking about two very different diseases, can yes. you give me the difference <clears throat> between the two? The, the difficulty, difficulty is they both start with I and B, and then there's a third letter, and, and sometimes people get them mixed up, even in, especially in Europe, because they, they change the letters also. But inflammatory bowel disease means that you literally, you put a camera inside the colon or inside the small bowel, and it's just ulcers and inflammation, and it looks terrible. But in irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, you see nothing. There's literally no inflammation. There's nothing. IBS is a, is a disorder of the function of the gut, not inflammation of the gut per se. 
So that's the difference primarily. Okay, to reiterate, IBS is a disease of the function of the insect. That's an important differential. What are the common symptoms of IBS because I, or SIBO, because I do believe they cross over into IBS. Yes, because 70% of IBS is SIBO. Mm-hmm. It's basically the same symptoms, but, but the, the symptoms of SIBO classically are, you know, you wake up in, your mor- in the morning, your tummy's rather, rather flat. And then as you eat through the day, the more you eat, the more bloated you get. And you start to eliminate foods because milk makes SIBO worse because the bacteria are getting all that lactose. Uh, beans makes it worse because those non-digestible carbohydrates are amazing food for bacteria in the gut. And if you have SIBO, you're going to get a lot more gas. And <clears throat> you start on your own eliminating foods because of that bloating, gas, distension, and pressure and pain that can happen. But it also uh, is associated with these weird bowel patterns where one day you'll have diarrhea three times, the next day you may have nothing, and then you may go two, two days without a bowel movement, and then you'll have another bad day of diarrhea. Or if you're on the methane side, you may go three days without a bowel movement and then have you know bad constipation. And, and so, but bloating and distension and after eating things getting worse are sort of very prototypical symptoms of SIBO. So here in Canada, I know you said there's a, a, a difference between uh, the accepted levels of SIBO here and in the States. If I had someone call in to me and say, what do I ask my doctor? What do I say to my doctor? I think this is what's going on. How do they start that conversation with their physician? Well, what's interesting in the U.S., just to contrast, is that SIBO has been around for a long time, 20 years, and you can get a breath test at almost any center in the U.S. In Canada, not every center has it. Uh, For example, there's no breath testing in Winnipeg. There is in Calgary. Uh, I believe breath testing is coming to Vancouver because uh, there's a doctor there that we helped train. There's uh, breath testing in McMaster down in southern southern Ontario. Uh, Montreal, McGill has breath testing. I've worked with those folks uh, in the past in collaborations and other things. So, so it's spotty as to where you could get breath testing to be identified as SIBO. But, but what, if I can touch on what's sort of sad about what's going on in Canada at the moment is that because SIBO hasn't transitioned to Canada uh, until recently, People in Canada are still being told, you know, IBS and SIBO or IBS is a psychological problem and mm-hmm. antidepressants should be what's used. And we we in the U.S. are past that. I mean, the prescriptions for antidepressants for IBS have gone down precipitously because the understanding of IBS and SIBO and that interrelationship has matured so much. And, uh, you know, uh, FDA-approved rifaximin, which is an antibiotic for IBS on the basis that part of IBS is a microbiome problem, SIBO, essentially. Uh, and so the FDA even recognizes IBS as a microbiome SIBO disease. Uh, it's changed a lot here in the U.S., but Rifaximin only got FDA approved or, or FDA equivalent approved in Canada a few months ago. So things are changing in Canada, and you know physicians will, will understand this more clearly as time goes on. Is it something that we can, uh, I don't just have to ask this question, it's nothing we can do online. There's no way that we can get a test kit for this. So so I believe there's, uh, in Calgary, there are online breath testing kits. The blood test that 
gets you to diagnosis of why your SIBO is there, the IBS Smart Kit is available online. Uh, I think it's ibssmart.com backslash Canada. So, but the problem is that it isn't available in a lab in Canada and it's expensive. And, and so not every Canadian probably would be willing to pay a U.S. price to get it. But it can be done um, if, you're, if, you're, if you want it or your physician wants it. Uh, so there, there are ways. Well, what we're left here with, you know, what I see sometimes in clinic and with people that I'm dealing with is that if perhaps an integrative practitioner feels that this could be an issue, what we do is we change the diet. Now, the diet alone, can this cure the problem of SIBO? So the low FODMAP diet is an example of a diet that's being used for IBS and SIBO. And the problem is, first of all, it almost never cures it because it's just not enough. Uh, The only way to remedy it would be antibiotic treatment. And we use rifaximin in the U.S. quite quite commonly because it doesn't cause bacterial resistance. It doesn't mess up your colon flora. That was all required to be proven to the FDA before approval, and that was proven. But my point is, about a third of patients who respond to rifaximin, it's one and done. Uh, six months later, they're symptom-free still, not having to follow diets, not having to do anything else. So the, if, you're, if you want a chance for cure, the only chance is the, the antibiotic rifaximin is what we've seen in the U.S., but diets help, of course. You know, I tell my patients with SIBO, if you ate nothing, your SIBO would go away because the bacteria would starve to death. Well, that's not a life, of course, and you can't do that. But the more you restrict, the more likely you are to get rid of your SIBO. But the more you restrict, the more malnourished you get. And we know with the popular low FODMAP diet, with a popular low FODMAP diet, there is literally, the, with the popular low FODMAP diet, the um, uh, low FODMAP diet, after three months, you're, you're malnourished. It's, there's measurable nutritional deficiencies seen in, in these patients. And so you can't do the low FODMAP diet indefinitely. And with the low FODMAP diet, that is, for people who are unfamiliar with it, you're not removing, I mean, from your your general diet, yes, you're removing junk food, uh, high sugar, you know, simple carbohydrates. But the low FODMAP diet is removing good food from your diet. You're not not removing just the, the sort of, quote, bad food, but you're removing good foods from your diet. And it's an extremely difficult diet for people to be on, an extremely difficult diet. But okay, so again, we're back to this situation where we we don't really have a voice right here to talk to our, our, our doctors with. What what do you suggest that we do? Well, look, there's a lot of online information about SIBO. Uh, like I said, about 3 million Canadians probably suffer from SIBO, and that's a lot. Uh, and things are changing. Things are moving in the right direction in Canada as well. Uh, here it's much easier for the time being, but there are ways to get breath testing. Uh, mail-in breath tests are available in Canada now. Uh, so you can find out if you have SIBO. And of course, Rifaximin got approved recently, so that's a that's a big benefit to Canadians and can be used in that way. So uh, things are changing and, and patients, but patients sometimes need to empower themselves with this new information because sometimes it's, uh, it's slower than patients want. Patients want relief now. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I sort of bring up in, in conversations with patients a lot is that 
IBS is not cancer. It doesn't kill people that way. But it doesn't mean it's not important. And SIBO is not, doesn't mean it's not important because this is affecting people. People don't want to go out for dinner. People don't want to go out with family members to on trips because they're in the car. And they're a nuisance because they have to stop at bathrooms. And it affects these patients because they feel like they're just a burden to everybody around them. And it often affects people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, productive years. Dating is hard because, you know, who wants to go on a date and then halfway through eating your meal, you're running to the bathroom and you're gone for half an hour because your SIBO is causing bloating, pain, and diarrhea. You know, it, it's, it's an enormous impact psychologically on these patients, but also on their, on their lives and livelihoods in terms of jobs and so forth. So while it's not cancer, it's quite a traumatic thing for people who have it. And so we have to, we have to pay attention to these symptoms in this condition. Getting back to the cause of SIBO, and the large portion of it is due uh, to food poisoning. You know, most people think when you have food poisoning, you're up uh, all night, throwing up, you know, diarrhea, all those lovely symptoms that we associate with food poisoning. Can people have food poisoning undetected? So the answer is is sort of question mark yes. So let's say a patient comes to my office and they're having the diarrhea form of SIBO. Well, they had to start with diarrhea at some point, but they don't know if that first day was food poisoning or not because they've had sort of chronic diarrhea for a while. So it's hard to tell. The only way to know is the blood test to know that that that's the cause. And the blood test is also helpful in that it can predict the severity the, the ability of it or the treatability of it as well because the, the worse the antibodies are, the harder it is to treat. But, you know, you may not remember this, the, the food poisoning that you had. It may have been one night or, or a small event. But the Mayo Clinic just published the definitive study on this, 45 outbreaks of gastroenteritis from across the world. If you get food poisoning, you're going to get these types of symptoms in about 11% of of cases. So one in 10 people, one in nine people who get food poisoning will end up in this situation for some period of time, some indefinitely. So it's not a small problem. And if you have food poisoning, someone's listening to the show and they, they get food poisoning a week from now, is there something that you can do right at the time to prevent this from happening? So we used to think food poisoning, okay, let it ride, don't don't treat it because you don't need to, it's just going to go away on its own. I can't tell you definitively that you should do something about food poisoning because the data aren't there yet to say, okay, if you took something, would that make it less likely? I, I, I personally believe that if you get food poisoning and you shorten it, your chance of going on to this is much lower. That's my personal belief, but the data, that study hasn't been done yet. But if those antibodies that we were talking about earlier are positive, your chance of food poisoning is higher. The chance of those antibodies going further up, making your SIBO worse, are higher. So that's where that those the blood test can predict. And, and all my patients with a positive blood test, when they travel, they get prevention, especially to areas that are you know more likely for food poisoning. Southeast Asia and and south of the U.S. border can be problematic as well. Interesting. Okay, back to um, the actual SIBO disease here. That I want to I want to hone into a question that someone sent in to me. Left unchecked, what can happen? So we've looked at a number of outcome measures that could happen from SIBO. We looked for 
could, can people develop osteoporosis because the bacteria are digesting a lot of nutrients? No. Uh, we looked at the relationship with cancer, and that is still evolving because we have a very large database ongoing, over 14,000 breath tests and so forth. And we're finding some subtle connections, but no, no definitive connection to cancer. But there is a connection to obesity. We do feel like people who have bacterial overgrowth have higher BMI, especially the methane producers. The methane does something very, very interesting to the gut. It slows the gut down so to the point where if you look at the calorie label on the back of a box and it says 100 calories, because your gut is now so slow, you're getting 110 or 120 calories, so you can't look at the label. It's not you. Uh, so the methane can be associated with obesity, and that there's probably about 10 papers showing that now. That's very interesting. Now, can you have a healthy large intestine with an unhealthy small intestine? So the answer is is yes. Uh, we've actually studied this with our uh, SIBO population in a, what we call the, this new study called the Reimagine study. We're trying to get juice from the small bowel of about 10,000 consecutive patients here and their stool. And the first uh, presentations of that data were at a lar- very large international meeting just two weeks ago. And, and we do see that the large intestine can, or the colon or stool bacteria, look relatively normal, but the small bowel is completely uh, disturbed with that weeds in the garden sort of notion that I mentioned earlier, where E. coli and bugs like that are just outgrowing and forming everything else because the flow in the small bowel is limited. Uh, so they will win. They're, they're faster, better, stronger bacteria if they're allowed to stay in the small bowel longer. That's very interesting. So where do you see the future going in your research? So so my pie in the sky, if, if that's the way I can phrase it, is I know that the antibodies that we're now measuring for food poisoning that are causing the slowing, that are causing SIBO, I know if I get those out of the bloodstream, this is cured. Uh, we don't know how to do that yet. We're working on it. And so that's part of the mission of our laboratory is to try and develop drugs that could mop that antibody out and then cure this condition and cure all the related conditions to SIBO like IBS. And uh, we're, we're working on that vigorously, but I don't have anything to report at the moment. Well, it does make a lot of sense if you've had food poisoning, especially severe food poisoning. If you could have a pill just to level the field for yourself, it makes a whole bunch of sense. A whole bunch of sense. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure this is a new topic for so many of you listening. Uh, Dr. Pimentel, if people wanted to find out more about you, about your research, uh, perhaps contact you, I don't know if that's within uh, the realm of possibility, where can they go? So if you, if you go to the Cedars-Sinai website and type in the MAST program, M-A-S-T program, uh, that's where we're, we, our website resides. And there's plenty of information on there on what we're doing and some of the stuff we talked about on the show is there as well.